Well, good evening, saints of the Most High God. Good evening! I am happy to tell you today that after a fruitful time in ministry and fellowship in Indonesia, my father is now in Italy. He will be investing time with the Massey family as they work toward gaining passports that will further Eastern European as well as Middle Eastern travel. Amen. So far in their time together, they have met with Albanian pastors to discuss the possibility of future partnership ministering inside of the Muslim world. The things that you are supporting are having an effect on what is happening right now, but especially the path of generations. Come on. As those things are worth celebrating. Yeah. These are exciting times to be in the army of God. We're receiving marching orders. Tonight brings us to our seventh day of introspection, soul searching and repentance, after covering the content of Ezra chapter 9. We are learning as a body to extol the one and only righteous God, while we, in the plural, while we take personal responsibility for our sin as a collective body. Amen. As 1 Corinthians 12, 26 says, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, then all rejoice with it. We are rejoicing in the progress made in the lives of families inside of this room. Amen. Amen. We have begun the initial steps toward conquering ancient giants. And we are on our way to completing three months of total revolution, total refocusing, and a total repurpose of our priorities. Thanks, we will see the work ahead of us completed. And we will do it through the hands of every family in this room. Saints, as we come to the conclusion of the second wave tonight in chapter 10, and also the conclusion of Ezra's work, we want to remind you that this ministry was founded on the principles of one life being changed. That one life changed could then move to change a family, and that one family could then move to changing a nation. The one life changed of Ezra will be on full display this evening in truly powerful ways as what started in him radiates out to the entire nation of Israel. The best of leaders like Ezra are always forged in adversity and personal repentance before ministering to anyone else. In many ways, Ezra is like a second Moses and a shadow of the Messiah to come because he chooses to stand up under the strain of sinful people and he calls them to repentance. His example of devoting himself to the word, observing the word, and teaching the word will be with us for the years to come. His example of glorifying God, personally repenting, and calling the nation to repentance must be our pattern if we are to see the nations of the world one for Christ. As a corporate body, we're beginning to awaken to the times that we are living in now. We're learning to take a serious stand for the word of God in every area. No longer tolerating unregenerated areas of the heart, first of all in us, and as well as in our families and in the world around us. Romans 13, 11 says, And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. We're excited about this evening. 
We're excited about the content that we have for you tonight. Because national Israel will find repentance and life as a result of awakened conviction, awakened urgency, and awakened desire to see the will of God done on the earth. It's a powerful thing when the community of God awakens to both the call of God as well as the sinful schemes the enemy has been using to subdue them. By the end of the evening, you will see Israel in right standing because of a radical and aggressive stance toward the sin that sought to destroy them from within. So our review this evening will be somewhat abbreviated tonight for the purpose of allowing more time at the end of the chapter to discuss conclusions and to celebrate the journey we have all been on together. You guys looking forward to celebrating? Before we jump into celebrating and into our slides, we want to remind you that what Paul said to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 10, 11-13. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages, ages has come. So, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't pull. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. You learned that the us that Paul is referring to is the early Messianic community, starting with Israel and then including the mysterious grafted Gentiles, most of us in this room. You learned that generations of Israelites are served by the example of their own forefathers, and we Graftians are served by it as well. Yeah. The obstacles, the trials, and challenges that the believing community in Ezra and Nehemiah faced are not isolated to that generation alone. While the historical setting is, is unique, the temptations and trials are common to all men, and especially applicable to the believing community in every age including ours. So tonight, we will unequivocally learn to stand up. Say stand up. Stand up. Stand up under the trials facing us, just like the men in Ezra and Nehemiah. Amen. Saints, are you with us? Yes. Our first slide, you should remember the covenant name. God is very central to the account of Ezra and Nehemiah. The first reference to God in the book of Ezra is the personal name of God that was given to the Israelites before the Exodus. You can review Exodus 3 for that. This name occurs 37 times in Ezra and 17 times in Nehemiah. It is referred to as the Tetragrammaton, or by the short form, Tetragram. This means that the name is made up of four letters in its original Hebrew form, Y-H-W-H. Every single aspect of Ezra and Nehemiah has the name of God Stamped. Somebody say stamped. Stamped. All over it as if to boldly declare for all generations that Yahweh's hand is on the restoration of Israel's heart, soul, and strength. You will recall that the names Ezra and Nehemiah have to do with the function of the book. Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra, you can hear the word Ezer, Ezer, help. Nehemiah means Yahweh comforts. Yahweh has consoled. The comfort of God, the aid of the Lord, it's made up of two roots. The first to comfort, and the second is Yahweh. Ezra, the help of God, and Nehemiah, the comfort of God, come in the order that they do for a reason. That's true. Help before comfort. 
The help of God must manifest in greater power over sin before comfort can arrive. Godly sorrow must finish its work before true restoration is possible. Our next slide is going to be critical to remember. As the ordering of your modern Bible can unknowingly subvert your own understanding of the one unified message that Ezra Nehemiah presents. Slide says, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah were regarded as one book in two parts by the Jews and early Christians. In Hebrew manuscripts of the Older Testament and in early printed editions of the Hebrew text, they were treated and reckoned as one book. The 685 verses being numbered from the first verse of Ezra on through to the last verse of Nehemiah. The middle verse was given as Nehemiah 3.32. The notes were placed at the end of Nehemiah. The division of the book, Ezra-Nehemiah, in later printed copies broke up the fourth of ten sedarim, or cycles for public reading, which began with Ezra 8.35 and ended with Nehemiah 2.10. That came from Dake's annotated reference Bible notes. It would be both incorrect and destructive to your understanding of this singular book to consider tonight the ending of God's restoration process in Israel. Tonight, we're going to see the restoration of Israel's soul, but that does not at all mean that Adonai is done with his plans for Israel in the book of Ezra Nehemiah or in the years that are coming ahead of us. Okay, so our next slide, we've dubbed Old Faithful. Take a look. Ain't she pretty? So you probably remember that there were three sieges on Jerusalem from Jeremiah's, our Jeremiah studies. As you engage with this slide, notice the three rectangular boxes titled Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. They represented how many waves? Three. Three, three waves of returning Jewish people to the land of promise that are detailed in the work we're covering together. Now draw your attention to the left side of the screen where there are two arrows. The 70 years of prophesied desolation began in the third siege and continued for 23 years after the Persians rose to power. The temple was destroyed in 586, and it was rebuilt and completed in 516 under the administration of Zerubbabel, bringing wave number one to completion. So the prophets Haggai and Zechariah were at work during this period. Haggai focused his efforts on regaining the initial enthusiasm to complete the work that had already begun on the temple but had stalled. Zechariah, well, he focused on the assurance that the work would indeed be completed, even though it had stalled. The Lord used these two prophets to ensure that the work on the temple was completed exactly 70 years after it had been destroyed, just as Jeremiah and Chronicles indicated. Come on. The work of God can never be truly stopped. The temporary delays due to opposition only serve to magnify Yahweh's sovereignty in the situation. When the people of God awakened to this reality, what had been stalled for 17 or 18 years was brought to completion in only about four years. We are, of course, in our own three-month time of reevaluation to ensure that we complete the work God has given us. Next, you may notice that there is a red circle with Esther in the middle of it. The temple was completed in 516 B.C., and the events of Esther took place in between the work of Zerubbabel and the arrival of Ezra in Jerusalem. That means that during our study 
On Esther, the temple had already been rebuilt. Now, our big, blue, beautiful box, of course, is around the second wave, which is our context in tonight's chapter. Remember, Ezra has shown up personally in Jerusalem in the 450s B.C., which is almost 60 years after the temple was completed and 80 years after the original decree of return went out. Ezra began by addressing the very soul of the nation that has had idolatrous practices growing in their midst during the time between the completion of the temple and Ezra's arrival. The altar in the temple, which could be thought of as the heart of the nation, were already in place. Yeah. One of the things you will notice in the ministry of Ezra is that the presence of a renewed heart, a born-again experience, the presence of a temple and altar, mm. do not indicate purity within the soul, the mind, will, and emotions of the nation. Now that's not the only thing, though. Another one of the things you will see tonight in the ministry of Ezra is that the presence of a renewed heart, the presence of a temple and altar, do not indicate that the actions of the nation are unmixed with the practices of the world around them. Thirdly, another thing that you're going to see again tonight in the ministry of Ezra is that the presence of a renewed heart, the presence of a temple and an altar, do not indicate that the most intimate areas of the law are being carried out in the lives of the men who have left everything to be in the land of Israel. Much like the Torah that addressed the heart, Zerubbabel took care to establish God's temple and altar in the heart of Israel. But Ezra, like the Nevi'im, addressed the soul of the nation and warned them about idolatry still present within their renewed nation. The character displayed in the life of Ezra is without a doubt one of those high marks that calls all real believers upward. As we go through the chapter, we're confident that you will experience the same desire to rise up, take your stand, and obey the whole will of God that we have experienced. Ezra clung to the law, and so it was impossible for the enemy to overcome him. As we told you last week, revival is the final destination of Ezra's ministry, and it's going to be the same for us. Come on, come on. So next, you should notice the rectangular box on the right side titled Nehemiah. It's getting closer. The focus of Nehemiah's ministry was establishing the security and strength of the nation based on faithfulness to Adonai in their given historical setting. This is easily related to the purpose of the Ketuvim in general. So Zerubbabel and Joshua established the temple and altar which are the heart of Israel. Then Ezra addressed Torah observance within the soul of the nation by confronting practices that don't reflect the spirit of the word. And finally, Nehemiah built the wall and the city, restoring its strength while encouraging faithfulness to the word in the historical setting that the people were living in. The three waves of return to Israel are also a threefold endorsement of the Tanakh in its threefold function. This ought to remind you of 2 Kings chapter 23. Verses 24 through 25. Furthermore, Josiah got rid of the mediums and spiritists, the household gods, the televisions, the idols, and all the other detestable things seen in Judah and Jerusalem. This he did to fulfill the requirements of the law written in the book that Hilkiah the priest had discovered in the temple of the Lord. Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all his heart, 
and with all his soul and with all his strength in accordance with all the law of Moses. The book of Ezra and Nehemiah is about returning to the God of Israel in all aspects of life. This is threefold, heart, soul, and strength. You may remember Ezra is from a long line of men who knew what it was like to be entrusted with something of incomparable value and make it a reality on the earth as they diligently studied, personally observed it, and taught others to do the same. Now, roughly 164 years after Josiah and Hilkiah, Ezra has the good deposit in his hands, and he has brought it back to Jerusalem. As Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. There is no area of your life that the word of God will not transform when you pursue it with the same seriousness that the men of God before us did. Come on, on, man. Let's look at our next slide together. All right, so the third siege of Jerusalem. Look at the right side of that screen. The siege that destroyed the temple. It occurred in what year? 586 B.C. Okay. The Persian conquest of Babylon occurred in? 539 B.C. Here we go. Zerubbabel and his companions returned under the edict of Cyrus in? 539 or 8 B.C. The temple was completed in? 560 B.C. Which was 70 years after its destruction. So Zerubbabel, Haggai, and Zechariah were all working in that 23-year period between the Edict of Cyrus and the completion of the temple. Ezra arrives in Jerusalem in the 450s B.C. to reform the people and teach them the Torah. And Nehemiah will arrive in Jerusalem in the 440s B.C. to rebuild the wall in the city. All right, so let's work down the left side of the screen. You will notice that around 538 B.C., Zerubbabel and his companions returned to Israel under the Edict of Cyrus so that they could begin rebuilding the temple. They began working on the temple in 538, but the work stalled for about 17 or 18 years. That's when Haggai and Zechariah stirred the people to action again. In about 520, the work was underway again, and as you know, it was completed in the year 516. As you slide down the scale almost 60 years, you'll come to our infamous blue box, where Ezra has returned to Jerusalem in 458 to begin the reformation work necessary for the remnant of the 12 tribes to be holy, pure, spotless, just as God intended. Now it's important to remember the significance of Ezra's arrival. The last time Israel was spiritually and physically strong as a nation was under the leadership of Josiah and Hilkiah, who was Ezra's great-grandfather. This was during a time of renewed commitment to the law that saw the soul of the nation prosper as they heeded the warnings prophesied within the law. So Ezra's ministry, in effect, is preparing the way for the ministry of Nehemiah, who will arrive in the 440s, that is, next week's content. Upon his arrival, he will begin to rebuild the city wall the city itself, and the general strength of the nation. It is important to remember that a critical message in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah is that the sacred must come before the secure. The events of this evening 
must come first for the ministry of Nehemiah to begin. Together, we're beginning to appreciate these dates, their significance, and their overall span. We've realized together that the book of Ezra and Nehemiah covers a period of about 100 years and is solely dedicated to the establishment of the heart, soul, and strength of Israel. The Lord is demonstrating his help through Ezra, and you're seeing that this evening, and his comfort through Nehemiah, which is coming, Come on. just as the definitions of their names suggest. In a final note before we begin praying and reading the text, we want to remind you that in Ezra 7, we saw Ezra's personal devotion to the law of God that was in his hand. In Ezra 8, we saw Ezra's personal observance of the law and his faith-filled journey stretching over 900 miles without a military escort. In Ezra 9, we saw Ezra's teaching, upholding the standard of the law in Israel and demonstrating what godly sorrow looks like. The inevitable result for men who cling to the word of God is revival in every area. Every area of their lives and revival in those who follow them. It is impossible for the enemy to overcome the will of God in Ezra's life. The Lord through Ezra will purify the people of Israel just as God has ordained him to do, and you're going to see that tonight. Psalm 138, 7-8 says, Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch forth your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand will save me. The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. Your loving kindness, O Lord, is everlasting. Do not forsake the works of your hands. Come on. Ezra didn't forsake the works of his hands. We're not going to forsake the works of our hands. We're going to jump right into chapter 10 and see what the works of Ezra's hands produce. Are you guys ready to pray? Let's get Dietrich Bonhammer to pray for us. (laughs) Kind of hard to say that. (laughs) Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for the work of your hands. Yes, Lord God. God, you are unifying us. You are causing a seriousness in this body to rise up. God, I'm asking that you continue to purify your people as you are teaching us to, to sacrifice rightly, as you are preparing us to build the walls and the houses of your people in this room. Continue to purify your people tonight with joy. And we might sacrifice with free will offerings with joy in your presence. God, thank you for tonight. Thank you for the time that our teachers got to spend together. God, anoint their lips to teach us your word in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's get Pastor Wade to read the text. While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children, gathered round him. They too wept bitterly. Then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the people around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up. This matter is in your hands. We will support you, so take courage and do it. So Ezra rose up and put the leading priests and Levites and all Israel under oath to do what had been suggested. And they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the room of Jehohanan, son of Eliashah. While he was there, he ate no food and drank no water. 
because he continued to mourn over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. A proclamation was then issued throughout Judah and Jerusalem for all the exiles to assemble in Jerusalem. Anyone who failed to appear within three days would forfeit all his property in accordance with the decision of the officials and elders and would himself be expelled from the assembly of the exiles. Within the three days, all the men of Judah and Benjamin had gathered in Jerusalem. And on the twentieth day of the ninth month, all the people were sitting in the square before the house of God, greatly distressed by the occasion and because of the rain. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have been unfaithful. You've married foreign women, adding to Israel's guilt. Now make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do His will. Separate yourselves from the peoples around you and from your foreign wives. The whole assembly responded with a loud voice, You are right! We must do as you say. But there are many people here, and it is the rainy season, so we cannot stand outside. Besides, this matter cannot be taken care of in a day or two, because we have sinned greatly in this thing. Let our officials act for the whole assembly. Then let everyone in our towns who has married a foreign woman come at a set time, along with the elders and judges of each town, until the fierce, fierce anger of our God in this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, son of Asahel, and Jahaziel, son of Tikvah, support, supported by Meshulam and Shabbatiah, the Levite, opposed this. So the exiles did as we proposed. Ezra the priest selected men who were family heads, one from each family division, and all of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to investigate the cases. And by the first day of the first month, they finished dealing with all the men who had married foreign women. Among the descendants of the priests, the following had married foreign women. From the descendants of Jeshua, son of Josedach and his brothers, Maasiah, Eleazar, Jareth, and Gedaliah, they all gave their hands in pledge to put away their wives, and for their guilt they each presented a ram from the flock as a guilt offering. From the descendants of Emmer, Hananiah, and Zebediah, from the descendants of Harim, Maasiah, Elijah, Shemaiah, Jehiel, and Uzziah, from the descendants of Pasher, Eliomai, Maasiah, Ishmael, Nathanel, Josabad, and Elisa, from the Levites, from among the Levites, Josabad, Shimei, Kaliah, that is Kalita, Bethahiah, Judah, and Eleazar, from the singers, Eliashib, from the gatekeepers, Shalom, Telem, and Uri, from the other Israelites, from the descendants of Parosh, Ramai, Isaiah, Malkajah, Benjamin, Eleazar, Malkajah, and Benaiah, and from the descendants of Elam, Mataniah, Zechariah, Jehiel, Abdi, Jeremoth, and Elijah, from the descendants of Zatu, <laughs> Eleonoiah, Eliashib, Mataniah, Jeremoth, Zabad, and Aziza, and from the descendants of Bibai, Jehohanan, Hananiah, Zabai, and Athali, from the descendants of Bani, Meshulam, Maluk, Adadiah, Jashub, Shial, and Jeremoth, from the descendants of Pahav, Moab, Adna, Kelal, Benaiah, Maasiah, Mataniah, Bezalel, Benui, and Manasseh, from the descendants of Harim, Eleazar, Ishijah, Malkajah, Shemaiah, uh, Shimeon, Benjamin, Maluk, and Shemariah, from the descendants of Hashem, Mataniah, Matathiah, Zabad, Elephant, Jeremiah, Manasseh, and Shimei, from the descendants of Bani, Maadai, 
Amram, Uel, Benaiah, Badiah, Kaluyi, Benaiah, Meribah, Eliashib, Mataniah, Matani, and Daasu. From the descendants of Benui, Shimeiah, Shalmiah, Nathan, Adaiah, Machnab, Mac, Machnad, Ebiah. I'm working on it, guys. Shishiah, Shariah, Azarel, Shalomiah, Shamariah, Shalom, Amariah, and Joseph. From the descendants of Nebo, Jeiel, Mattathiah, Zabda, Zeba, Jedaiah, Joel, and Benaiah. All these had married foreign women, and some of them had children by these wives. Somebody give me a straight in. You guys going to stay with us? Yes. We promise we won't let you down. Tonight's teaching is going to be awesome. Yes. So let's get into verse 1. While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children, gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. Wow, so you guys should remember from last week that we noted the way Ezra responded to the sin of the people. It was actually similar to many great men of God in the past, like Daniel and Moses. Let's review a slide together. The importance of Ezra for the creation and formation of what came to be known as rabbinic Judaism cannot be overestimated. According to the Bible, Ezra was the one who brought the Torah to the returning exiles, read and interpreted it publicly and oversaw the people's solemn recommitment to its teachings. Thus, Ezra is like a second Moses. The rabbis imply this by stating, Ezra was sufficiently worthy that the Torah could have been given through him if Moses had not preceded him. Ezra is both an authoritative scribe and priest, as well as a kind of proto-rabbi, who also has the authority of a prophet. His legal innovations are not seen as such, but are depicted as proper interpretation of eternally binding Mosaic law. This principle is at the heart of rabbinic interpretation, and his authenticity is never called into question within rabbinic Judaism. Oh, yeah. So here in verse 1 of chapter 10, we still see Ezra mourning over the sin of the people in the same manner that Moses had mourned before him. We have a slide for you. Just highlighting the areas in Numbers where Moses fell face down, like Numbers 14.5. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole assembly uh, gathered there. 16.14, when Moses heard this, he fell face down. 16.22, Moses and Aaron fell face down and cried out. Numbers 16.44 uh, through 45, and the Lord said to Moses, get away from this assembly so I can put an end them at once and they fell face down. Ezra, like Moses beforehand, did not scruple to physically lower himself as he glorified God and repented for the sins of his people. Now this kind of humility is always a precursor to beautiful things. Did you notice that a large crowd of Israelites 
men, women, and children gathered around him? Did you catch that? What began in Ezra alone has grown to include a large crowd of men, women, and children who are all moved in the same manner as Ezra. Amen. This is a kind of picture, or this kind of picture is unique to some special times in Israel's history, and we're going to look at one of those in 2 Chronicles 20. Picking up in verse 13, all the men of Judah with their wives and children and little ones stood there before the Lord. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, a Levite and a descendant of Asaph, as he stood in the assembly. This is, of course, during the reign of Jehoshaphat, when superior numbers of enemies were marching on Israel. Rather than asking for terms of peace or meeting with his top generals, Jehoshaphat gathered before the Lord at the temple and sought the God of Israel for deliverance. But who did he do this with? With all of their wives, children, and little ones standing there. Amen. This is a profound lesson for every father in the room. Your repentance and cries unto God, well, they should be within the full view of your wife and children, That's even down to the little ones. Yep. What you find out later on is that Jehoshaphat was met with supernatural deliverance. And the man... The women and the children and the little ones who participated in coming before the Lord also got to see the Lord's deliverance. Come on. See, tonight in Ezra's case, we are poised for a similar type of deliverance. Instead of being delivered from an external army, this deliverance will be from sin that sought to destroy Israel from within. All the men, women, and children who are repenting together will also experience the deliverance of God together. Now, did you notice that verse 1 said, while Ezra was throwing himself down, the people joined together? As a final note before moving on to verse 2, we need to appreciate that what began with Ezra weeping alone, repenting alone, glorifying God alone, did not stay with him alone. Amen. In Ezra 9.4, we saw, then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me. You see, there is a building effect throughout this process that now has a large group around Ezra here in chapter 10, verse 1. To begin to appreciate this process and the effect that we are seeing, we need to appreciate what Ezra did first in chapter 9. Mm. Ezra did not start with pointing out sin in the people around him. Ezra did not start by assuming that the problem needed to be fixed in the people first. There was a problem in the people, but that's not where Ezra started. Ezra started by recognizing that there is a sin issue, and his solution to the problem would be addressing his own sin first and personally repenting and extolling the Lord's character. This is remarkable, considering the fact that the entire Bible doesn't record anything. Ezra sinning even once. Doesn't record him sinning once, and yet he's taking all the responsibility. You see, there are no areas of deficiency, fault, or faithlessness that are ever attributed to Ezra. But what does he start doing first? Repenting before God. You know, there's an old saying. It goes like this. No one who dreams of changing the world starts with changing themselves. Well, it's truly remarkable here that in Ezra's case, 
This statement is completely untrue. Perhaps that is why he will find the success that he does in tonight's chapter. Men of God, when you want to address change in someone else, you need to be the change that you want to see first. It will always result in those around you having the same revelation that you do. Perhaps that is why Matthew 7, 1 through 5 says to take the plank from your own eye first. And perhaps, maybe, possibly, that is why we have Abigail and Nabal cards. You read your own Nabal traits first. Let's pick up in verse 2. Then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women and from the people around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Come on. So you should remember from last week that leading men came to speak with Ezra after he had finished making sacrifices upon his arrival in Jerusalem. Now Ezra 9.1 said, After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, Verse 1 of Ezra 9 did not say that Ezra and those with him noticed that these things were going on. (laughs) It said that the leaders came to him after these things. The point is that the leaders who were already in the land watched Ezra and the men with him arrive uh, with the law and make a sin offering and now have come to tell Ezra about what's been happening. These men who came to Ezra clearly knew that these marriages were sinful. They had the word of God to stand on and the authority of heaven, but did not do anything with it. They were guilty of tacit approval in the worst kind of ways, not just for a day, but for over 60 years. Somebody say, however. However. However, the repentance that began in the one life of Ezra has produced something in the families around him. Shechaniah is saying, or the way that the ESV put it is, addressing Ezra. Ah. Ezra, we have been unfaithful, but there is still hope. Amen. Praise God for this kind of response. Come on. Yeah. See, we love that what has started in Ezra is now blessing Ezra himself through other men. Amen. Ezra is not the one declaring that there is no hope, but instead it's the leaders that he helped to raise up. Shechaniah is demonstrating true repentance and response to Ezra's prayer. He accurately confesses his own sin, saying, We have been unfaithful while acknowledging the character of God. Guys, I want you to notice, he did not alleviate the sin of the men who are in these foreign marriages or leave himself out. He says, we have sinned as a community. When the hearts of men are truly experiencing godly sorrow, it produces confidence in the character of God. Hallelujah. See, this confidence is the character of God allowed bold repentance like Shechaniah did. Now, a shallow or a cursory repentance, in contrast, it's always an indication of little or small faith in the character of God. For instance, as an example, giving mishlunkas that are limited and calculated beforehand are just giant expressions to the heavens that you do not trust Yahweh, and therefore you do not grow like those who do trust Yahweh. Shechaniah, however, <laughs> however, found his courage upon seeing Ezra's example. Yeah. Man, that ought to teach us something. Yeah. And he did not stay in faithlessness or in tacit approval. Come on. We have a slide for you that will help you appreciate what kind of man Shechaniah is. 
Let's look at Shechaniah's familial connections. Shechaniah answered and said unto Ezra, We have trespassed. This was one of the leading men, who was not himself a delinquent in the matter, because his name does not occur in the following list at the end of the chapter. He spoke in the general name of the people, and his conduct evinced a tender conscience, as well as no small fortitude in making such a proposal. Because since his father and five paternal uncles were involved in the guilt of unlawful marriages, he showed by the measure he recommended that he deemed it better to obey God than to please his nearest relatives. You're going to see his family members in the list tonight. You see, Shechaniah's own father had fallen into this sin. Daddy's not all right. (laughs) And he found the courage to confront it. Shechaniah had not one, but five uncles. Man, bad family reunion. They were all participating in this sin. And he, even though he's the nephew, has found the courage to confront it. See, what began in Ezra has reached Shechaniah in a truly profound way. He is now encouraging Ezra that there's still hope for Israel. Oh, come on. In light of that, read Matthew 19, 28 with me. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or fathers, or mothers, or children, or fields for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Shechaniah will certainly not fail to receive his reward. Many who are first, first in the family structure, first in getting the marriage that they wanted, well, they will be last in the age to come. Sons of the Most High can wait for the provision of the Father. Daughters of the Most High can wait and hope for restoration in difficult circumstances. Those who are not secure in the character of God, well, they are always grasping for their own concerns or the concerns of their immediate relatives like children, fathers, or uncles. Shechaniah sets us an example regarding what it looks like to leave all of that behind in order to stand with God and with his word. Let's go to Luke 8, and we're going to pick up in verse 19. It says, Now Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Someone told him, Your mother and brothers are standing outside, wanting to see you. He replied, My mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. Shechaniah, in a very literal sense, has chosen to stand with the word of God and his ambassador, Ezra, over the male leaders of his family line and all of his family who would follow those male leaders. Mm. Those who do the will of the Father are Shechaniah's family. He will receive the familial inheritance of the kingdom instead of the praise or affirmation of his blood relatives, and this is a trade worth making again and again, Amen. like Proverbs 25, 6-7 says, Do not exalt yourself in the king's presence, and do not claim a place among great men. It is better for him to say to you, 
come up here than for him to humiliate you before a nobleman. The point being that all of Shechaniah's family chose what they thought was best for themselves first. And Shechaniah waited for what the Lord would provide, even if it meant that it looked like the rest of his family was further along than him. Ooh. Proverbs 20, 21 says, because it's always a good time for a proverb. Yeah. An inheritance quickly gained at the beginning will not be blessed at the end. This is certainly true in the case of the men who chose pagan women, taking for themselves an inheritance of their own making, and it is certainly true of us today every time we choose not to wait on the Lord's provision. There are very real-world, tangible consequences to entering into marriages the wrong way or taking a job you wanted for yourself without the Lord's directions. Shechaniah, however, found the courage to separate himself from all of that. The first thing Shechaniah has a revelation after rightly embracing repentance, well, it's hope. See, when he embraces repentance correctly, he has a revelation of hope for Israel. Amen. Come on. Romans 11, 26 through 27 says, So all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now the Apostle Paul is quoting a passage here. And after he had repentance in his life, it birthed new hope for national Israel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Funny how that works. This is and always will be the case for Israel. Up until the time that Yahweh takes away their sin permanently, yeah. truthfully. Up until you are permanently redeemed, it is no different for you or for us. We will always be in a place where we must cling to the word of God and the character of Adonai. There is hope for Israel. Come on. And that means there is hope for you. Amen. If you will repent and cling to the Lord of Israel. Shechaniah's yes. revelation of hope. It also leads him to a serious, an aggressive, and a powerful solution to their sin problem. Are you ready for verse 3? Yes. Yes. Help us out. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Wow. Shechaniah's prescription to the sin problem is in accordance with three witnesses. Hmm. The counsel of my Lord, those who fear the commands, and according to the law. We want to show you another slide. This is on the courage of Shechaniah. One man, Shechaniah, spoke for all the people who were weeping. He acknowledged the unfaithfulness of the nation, but he felt that there was still hope for Israel. He suggested that the people covenant before God to divorce the foreign women and send them away along with the children they had born. This was to be done according to the law. Shechaniah promised Ezra that the people would stand behind him in such a decision. Shechaniah was calling on the nation to do something distasteful and difficult, something that could cause bitter division between family members and friends. Yep. However, he appealed on the basis of the law of God, which was supposed to be the people's rule of life. The law also was a safeguard for this situation. For an Israelite could marry a woman from outside the nation if she had become Jewish in faith. Perhaps that is why each marriage was investigated thoroughly. 
to see if any women had become Jewish proselytes. So Shechaniah's proposal was a bitter pill to swallow. And one born of God from the word and right counsel. He was aware the obedience would create division and that it was still worth it anyway. Amen. Let's read Matthew 5, 27 together. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Wow, we have thousands of hours of preaching that have been dedicated to explaining why you should not physically cut off your hand or gouge out your eye. The reality is that we do not spend enough time considering why Jesus used such strong Calvay Comer language here. Every bit of New Testament teaching is rooted in the Older Testament. The clear inference in Matthew 5 is that it is incumbent on you to do whatever is required to separate yourself from sin and enter the kingdom of God. Colossians chapter 2, verses 21 through 23, actually clarify for us that external restrictions birthed from a man's desire to restrain sin actually do nothing for the man. In Ezra's day, you will see a demonstration of what it looks like to make difficult choices and radical amputations in a threefold witness. So let's consider the threefold witness for a moment. Shechaniah said, In accordance with the counsel of my Lord and those who fear the commands of our God, let it be done according to the law. The Lord Shechaniah is referring to is Ezra, the leadership that brought him up to a place of courage and conviction. Somebody say, Witness number one. Witness Witness number one. Those who fear the commands of God. This is the believing community or congregation of the righteous, a.k.a. your brothers. Witness number number two. And witness number three, the word itself. Men who have a real direction from God do not feel the need to prove it. Amen. Shechaniah did not qualify his direction by reviewing his holiness, by claiming that the Lord had spoken to him directly, or elevating himself above his brothers in any way. Wow. He started by acknowledging his own sin, dealing with his own heart. And submitting the direction to a threefold witness, the word of God itself, the believing community, and the leaders. This is the only means by which we can know for certain that the direction is actually correct. It's a good word. It's a great word. No amount of prayer, no amount of fasting, or existential experience can circumvent this process of review. So, let's review an all-too-important passage that needs to be committed to memory often. It's Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen to you, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Thanks every matter regarding discipline, 
and restoration in the body must be established by two or three witnesses. See, in Shechaniah's case, he's not waiting for the extreme to happen. He's not waiting for someone else to force him to face witnesses. <laughs> he's willingly, honestly, stepping up to the plate in submitting the matter of discipline and restoration to these three witnesses. Wow. Because he did not trust himself and his own ability to hear God above the witness of this kind of team. Come on. Verse 16 says, But if you will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Anytime Jesus is repeating himself, it's for a reason. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. In the church of God, it is personally prescribed by Jesus that if a man will not listen to his brothers, will not listen to the leaders, and will not listen to the congregation as it pertains to sin outlined in the law, well, he's to be effectively banished. This is always intended to give room for there to be real change. But as we continue in Ezra, you will notice that Ezra utilizes the same tools prescribed by Jesus. Amen. If any Israelite does not appear, their property is to be confiscated, and they are to be banished from the assembly. I wonder what text Jesus was expounding on here in Matthew 18. Let's pick up in verse 18. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you, here it is again, again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. Look, the men in Ezra's day are standing on the word and the threefold witness between the word, the leaders, and those who feared the commands. What they bind on earth, it will be bound in heaven. Saints, there are so many passages in the Bible that we can glean from to understand what repentance looks like. But this, in Ezra 10, is truly a remarkable display through Shechaniah's actions. Amen. We can glean such truths as... Y'all still breathing? Yes! Yeah. We can glean such truths as true repentance always ends. Say always. Always. True repentance in this body always ends in committed actions in agreement with the corporate body and the written word of God. If there is no actual commitment to a certain action that is in agreement with the threefold witness of the body, the leaders, the, your brothers, i.e. your team, and the word of God, then how can we know that the repentance will be lasting and true? Right. 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 Any of you ever repented and then immediately go into the pastor and says, hey, this is what I'm going to do. Then go to your brothers. This is what I'm going to do based on the word. That is the threefold witness. But we know, based on Shechaniah's actions and the entire corpus of the canon, that if repentance is done in agreement with these three witnesses and done openly, then that repentance is solid. Solid as it gets. Solid repentance causes exponential outcomes in those around you. Remember, Ezra starts with this solid repentance and then Shechaniah follows exponentially. 
Do you see how it, it expounds in the people around him? But weak and impotent repentance that is done alone without the threefold witness, well, it causes an exponent as well. Let's move on to verse 4. Rise up. This matter is in your hands. We will support you. So take courage and do it. Ooh, this verse has been a cornerstone of this house for a long time now. To start with in this incredible verse, we want to note that Shechaniah has gone on to not only propose a solution, but to directly encourage Ezra to act upon that said solution in a courageous manner. I actually have a slide for you. It's going to help us to break down three Hebrew words utilized in this particular verse. You can see the verse at the top. Rise up is the first one. This matter is in your hands. We will support you so. Take courage and do it. So those three words are highlighted here. All three of these words in English have a powerful impact. But surprise, surprise, they're even more moving when you consider the Hebrew in the original language. The first one, rise up. This is Strong's number 6965. This is kum. It means to arise, to stand, to stand up, both in a physical and in a spiritual sense. It also carries the connotation of establishing something in strength, in victory, or to bring revival to something. Let's look at the second one, Strong's number 2388. Kazakh! How many of you recognize that word? So many of you guys are going to be familiar with this word. And it, of course, means physical strength. But in the context of this usage, it has more to do with a strength or courage of one's character. Lastly, Strong's number 6213, Asa. You may recognize it from Psalm 3414 in your marriage counseling homework. It means to do or to act, but with a distinct purpose or goal in mind. It is used in conjunction with actions relating to fulfilling God's commands. So Shechaniah told Ezra, rise up, as in physically and spiritually. Stand up in victory and revival. This matter is in your hands. We will support you, so take courage and strength or bravery of character. And do it, meaning to act according to the distinct purpose of fulfilling God's commands. Come on with the goal in mind. In this verse, there are beautiful and practical applications that need to be firmly embedded into your soul like a well-driven nail. When sin is correctly addressed, repented of, and brought to the attention of the body, the body can be included in the remedial steps to restoration. We want that. Repentance that is done alone is only backed by the strength of one fallible man, you. Repentance that is done in the light allows the body to step in and fight together. Amen. This is one of our axioms. I need my brothers, and my brothers need me. If we strive to include the threefold witness, to stand up physically and spiritually with us as a group, as a, as a body, then we'll, we will be more skillful in excising our sin. If we endeavor to take courage and strength of character along with the threefold witness in this body, then we will reduce the time of our growth. I mean, it's not hindered by harboring sin. If we charge forward to do, asa, 
or have actions directed towards fulfilling God's commands in unity with a threefold witness, we will build back better. <laughs> the real way. <laughs> the way that it was intended. So remember that these are not the words of Ezra, but the words of a leader that helped, he helped create. Discipleship done correctly will raise up men who can counsel and pastor you, especially in your old age. But with that, let's go on to verse 5. So Ezra rose up and put the leading priests and Levites in all Israel under oath to do what had been suggested. And they took the oath. So did you guys realize before you came in here that verse 4 was not Ezra speaking? If you had that question asked to you three months ago, would you have been able to answer it? Mm. Yeah, I just found out. See, verse 5 is Ezra responding to a disciple who was trained well in helping to pastor Ezra in the moment. Come on. My God, how much do we need this? Come on. Yeah. Notice once again that there are three parties to this oath. There are leading priests, there are Levites, and then all Israel, as in the congregation. A threefold witness. The words Ezra rose up are the same words that we visited earlier. Strong's number 6965, Kum. He stood up both physically and spiritually in response to the address of Shechaniah. We would like to show you a document. It's an ancient source. Yep. One that everyone association pastor holds to, and that you would do well to hold to in your teams. Are you ready for it? Yeah. Yeah. O's from our articles. Having tasted of the age to come, I will never fail to boldly advocate for the personal and corporate manifestations of the gifts. Oath number one. Having been adopted into the Holy Family, I will not rest until every nation in the world is represented before his throne. Oath number two. I will not be bribed, intimidated, or seduced away from the daily implementation of the undeniable truths of Scripture. Oath number three. Then we move to irreducible minimums for us to have a working relationship with anyone. I want and am asking for encouragement, correction, rebuking, and training in righteousness according to the Word of God from my friends and my peers. Amen. This will equip me for every good work. Number two, the sun will not set on unbiblical behavior. This sets our time frame. Regardless of feeling, regardless of situation, I will take biblical action upon notice. Number three, I have proven to my brothers, and my brothers have proven to me that we have each other's best interest in mind, and we will place our brothers' needs above our own. I will sacrifice my thoughts. I will sacrifice my emotions and opinions to implement the word's instruction for our good. Number four, a promise made to the group is a vow, a pledge before my God, and therefore it is not optional and cannot be renegotiated or annulled. My word is my bond and can be trusted. It is in writing. Number five, righteousness is all that matters. Therefore, when training in righteousness is needed... It is good, spiritual, and restorative. I have surrendered my life, responsibilities, and ambitions to the Lord and this group. When it is deemed necessary to step down from an activity or position for a specified time period, I will accept my training in righteousness for restoration. 
See, they had a threefold witness, and they're taking oaths to handle this matter well. I think we should do the same. Notice that Ezra didn't take a poll and see who would follow him. He put them under oath. LCM, we are under oath, aren't we? Yes, we are. In the same manner that Ezra repented publicly and now is requiring action associated with repentance publicly, we maintain that all such commitments should be plainly spoken of and hung up on a wall for all to see. If someone has just met you and it takes them more than an hour to find out that you are a man of conviction, a man of your word, a man of oaths, then something is wrong. We should commit to hold the word, to publicly brandish the way that we live and the lifestyle that we have committed to both as a family and as teams. I think everyone can agree that a wedding ring is a powerful symbol of your commitment, right? And a powerful symbol of your oaths. But if it was hiding in a box in your bathroom or in your office, then it is literally of no use. Once again, our oaths and convictions must be brandished and displayed before witnesses who will stand alongside us in times that are difficult to hold our convictions. Quite simply, if your oaths and articles are in a private place, like sitting in your car, well, then they're useless. But if they're brandished publicly, then they can be seen publicly for everyone to follow. As a quote from our own house states, a matter dealt with in private is easily put away in private. (laughs) So we want to take a minute to briefly develop your understanding of what it means to rise up. In order to do this, we're going to utilize only passages that have the same exact Hebrew word in them. This is because it's going to be important to your understanding of Ezra's behavior in the coming verses. So our first one is going to be from Genesis chapter 6 and verse 18. It says, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. This is Yahweh speaking here. The word establish in this passage is kum. It's 6965. The Lord is saying that he will raise up both physically and spiritually a covenant with Noah. By implication, it is associated with the word establish here in the NIV because God himself says that he will make it strong. Let's look at 1 Samuel 2, 34 and 35. And what happens to your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, will be assigned to you. They will both die on the same day. Verse 35. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and and mind. I will firmly establish his priestly house and they will minister before my anointed one always. So once again, God is the one raising up, making something spiritually and physically strong and bringing it into being. In this case, it's the prophet Samuel. Y'all ready for our favorite? Yep. Yeah. Jeremiah 1.17. Get yourself ready. Stand up and say to them whatever I command you. Amen. See, it goes on to say, do not be terrified by them, or I will terrify you before them. Today I make you a fortified city, an iron pillar and a bronze wall to stand against the whole land. 
against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but will not overcome you. For I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Somebody say, rise up! Rise, rise up! up! And tuck up! And tuck, tuck up! up. Here in Jeremiah, the Lord is telling him to raise himself up spiritually and physically. The Hebrew verbiage actually has to do with an athlete that is getting to run, literally tucking things up. There is no way for you to divorce the physical and the spiritual nature of this word. It means get yourself ready for action on the inside and on the outside. All right, we're going to read Daniel 8.27, but you want to know what the fun part about this word is, rise up? Yeah. It's usually in the imperative in Hebrew. You guys know what an imperative is? Yep. It's the law of the land. It's not, you might rise up or you shall rise up. It's, rise up now! You must rise up! And it's even fun when you say it in Hebrew. It's kum. Kum! Now! Listen to it in Daniel 8.27. Y'all say it with me when you come across it. I, Daniel, was exhausted and lay ill for several days. Then I, boom, got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. Man, after seeing a vision of sin and violence, Daniel, boom, both physically and spiritually, to go about the king's business. Uh, our last one comes from Nehemiah 2.11. So I went up to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. Come on. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. This, character is this chapter is still a few weeks ahead of us, guys. We're just a couple weeks away from it. But you will see that after reviewing the desperate condition of Jerusalem's walls, Nehemiah rose up both spiritually and physically to begin working on these walls. This evening we actually don't have time to review the history of this word's usage. But during times of revival in Israel's history, when Levites rose up to turn Israel's heart back to the Lord, it shows up very frequently. Let's head on to verse 6 together. Withdrew? Whoa, what? Hey, hold on. After talking about rising up so much, now the word's saying that Ezra withdrew? We don't retreat. We reload. Yeah, right. <laughs> then Ezra reloaded from before the house of God and went to the room of Jehohanan, son of Elijah. While he was there, he ate no food and drank no water because he continued to mourn over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. So our Hebrew scholar has helped us with a literal translation. The literal Hebrew says that he rose up from the face of the house of the Lord. He cool. Cool. Ah, Still work, cool. Same word. Ezra was not withdrawing. He was not retreating. He was heading to a very special man's house. Now we're not going to get in, uh, into it in depth here tonight as our plans are to give you just a taste and whet your appetite about it. But this man, Jehohanan, is a direct descendant, most scholars say even a grandson of Eliashib, the high priest. When we get to Nehemiah 12 and 13, you will discover that Jehohanan is also the close relative to the man who married Sanballat's daughter. Uh-oh. This begs the question, 
Why is Ezra rising up to the room of Jehohanan, uh, son of Eliashib? We believe that this man, much like Shechaniah in the previous verses, was a man of conviction who also took a bold stand against the sinful inbreeding of his own water of the womb family. Thus, Ezra rises up to meet Jehohanan and uses his quarters to continue to fast, pray, and mourn over the current condition of the exiles. Wow. Saying sometimes what rising up looks like is going to the uncompromised and getting away from those who spoiled their lives. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Ezra knew that his work was not done in these matters. Rather, his work was just beginning. He's just getting revved up. Yeah. Ezra understood that having a solution and the solution actually being carried out oh. are two very different things. That's true. Ezra does not back up. He does not let up. He does not shut up until Israel is truly transformed. The phrasing of this passage is very, very similar to 1 Kings 13, verses 7 and 8. And the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. Mm. And the man of God said to the king, If you give me half of your house, <laughs> I will not go with you. Yeah. And I will not eat bread or drink water in this place. For those of you who are unfamiliar with this story, a man of God from the southern kingdom of Judah, who was sent to the northern kingdom of Israel, was given specific instructions from the Lord. The man of God was to distinguish between the delivery of his message and the actual transformation of the people who received said message. Like Ezra, he is not to eat or drink in the presence of this sinfulness until there is real transformation that the Lord confirms himself. A passage in 1 Corinthians, chapter 5, verses 9 through 11 may come to mind. Don't even eat with a man that claims to be a brother that is sexually immoral. Wow. See, unlike the man of God in 1 Kings 13, who failed, by the way, Ezra receives no command regarding his food and water intake that is recorded in Scripture, at least. However, probably due to his extensive study in the law, he seems to know innately that pressure cannot be removed until there is real, demonstrable, and lasting change. Also remember from our previous week that in Judaism, fasting is synonymous with repentance. You saw that in the life of Mordecai. Yeah. So that's interesting, right? A solution's been presented, and yet Ezra's going to keep repenting. Mm -hmm. What we're seeing here is that Ezra remains committed to repentance, even though a solution has already been presented. The solution doesn't deter him. This is godly sorrow expressing itself in Ezra's actions. He will not settle for a percentage of the seven actions of godly sorrow. He will not stop until all the actions of godly sorrow has borne fruit in his soul and the soul of the nation. You're going to remember this slide from last week. You remember that in 2 Corinthians 7, godly sorrow produces earnestness eagerness, indignation, and the unparalleled truth, alarm, which produces longing, concern, and readiness to see justice done. See, although a solution has already been presented by Shechaniah to fix the sin problem, Ezra is not relieved from the responsibility to keep the pressure on the situation, Ooh. nor is he happy to simply move on. Come on now. He stays in this attitude of repentance 
Because he knows that true repentance is marked by these seven facets. Remember when we taught 2 Corinthians 7? We learned that if we only possess one out of these godly characteristics, that we do not have true repentance. The seven facets of godly sorrow, they are all building on each other and they're all interconnected. You can't have half of them or just one out of seven. They ultimately, and Ezra knows this, they ultimately lead to the goal that John the baptizer was aiming at in his ministry. Come on, let's read that. This is Matthew 3, 8. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. So Ezra knows that true repentance will not be a one-time event, but that it will have to express itself in keeping with all the godly characteristics of repentance. And that expression is what actually produces lasting fruit. In other words, lasting repentance stems only from a genuinely transformed heart. Restraint of the flesh, this is of no value for real, genuine godliness. If you have been transformed into an olive tree, then you will produce olives. Sinners are great at producing temporary fruit to relieve their pressure. But godly sorrow actually leaves a Christian with no regret. How often do we give up, our, give up in our personal effort to crucify sin when we see just a little progress? We must be faithful to what we know must happen whether we see progress or not. Guys, this is just like David in the scenario with Goliath. He didn't just kill Goliath. No, he chopped off Goliath's head. Let us not just hurl stones at sin. Let us kill it and kill it completely, no matter how difficult that battle must be, so that we may be completely done with sin. Amen. Let's do another one. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 6. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments in every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience. Once your obedience is complete. A linguistic note, this word for complete is plero, or pleromai, meaning filled up to the fullness. Like Ezra, we are not waiting to see just a little progress in this body in our battle against internal pressures. What we're going to do is continue to keep the pressure on ourselves and those in our care until obedience is complete. Filling up, yeah. it has reached its complete fullness. A proclamation was then issued throughout Judah and Jerusalem for all the exiles to assemble in Jerusalem. Anyone who failed to appear within three days would forfeit all his property in accordance with the decision of the officials and would himself be expelled from the assembly of the exiles. Don't respond and you're going to get exiled from the exiles. <laughs> like this should call to mind what we told you in Ezra chapter 7. Ezra 7.26 says, Whoever does not obey the law of your God and the law of the king must surely be punished by death, banishment, or confiscation of property, or imprisonment. See, through a twofold witness, officials and elders, 
They are enacting their God-ordained authority, officials and elders, standing in what was granted to Ezra. See, on a somewhat humorous note, and yet a deathly serious note, the punishment for these exiles is that they would be exiled yet again if they do not align themselves with the proclamation. Ooh. It is not within our purview this evening, but the ramifications of this concept on once saved, always saved, well, it's quite brutal on those doctrines. If you have been saved from exile, he is more than capable and willing to exile you once again. <laughs> now notice that no one is exempt from this call to appear. Did you notice it says all Israel must appear within three days? Yes. Well, this is for at least three reasons. Reason number one, what happens to one part of the body affects the whole body. Yeah, that's true. There are some that are listed as intermarrying with foreign women, and yet it affects the entire nation of Israel, and therefore they all have to appear. The second reason, all Israel was guilty of sin, whether they personally were involved in a forbidden marriage, or they just knew about it and gave tacit approval. Ooh. They all had to appear because at some point they all bore guilt for allowing their brothers to do this. The third reason, no one in the community is going to be exempt from the process of searching out sin within them. No one in the body is exempt from having to search out and go through the inquiry of finding where the sin is in the game. Now notice that they had three days to appear. This in the Hebrew mind is hinting at the distance between life and death. So let's pick up in verse 9. Within three days, all the men of Judah and Benjamin had gathered in Jerusalem. And on the 20th day of the ninth month, all the people were sitting in the square before the house of God, greatly distressed by the occasion and because of the rain. You see how NIV here says greatly distressed by the occasion? Well, the ESV, the NASB, and the NET, they all actually say trembling here instead of distressed. The people are trembling because of their sin and because of what they know is going to happen. This draws to mind parallels of Mount Sinai, doesn't it? The people trembling on the mountain at the words of God. Notice also that it is raining outside. Kind of like a promise keepers meeting. (laughs) They were faithful to meet the three-day deadline and they are also there trembling at the words of God and all the while there is opposition happening around them. It can be consistently and regularly expected that there will be physical opposition of various kinds any time that there is a call from God to purification. Let's give you some examples. Of course, there is sickness in your family on a Sunday when there's a specific word that you personally need to hear. Of course, you got to rise up, church. Of course, there are distractions occurring when you know that you need to pick up the phone and call a pastor about your state. And of course, there are thousands of other good things to do that run through your mind when you know that you need to pick up your Bible and read it. Guys, it's time for us to rise up. It's time for us to conquer these distractions once and for all. Chop off their head. So you should remember from our previous studies that we reviewed the exiles' dealings with similar such opposition when we taught chapters 3 and 4. We'd like to read a verse from Esther 3 just to jog your memory. 
Ezra 3.3. 3. Despite their fear of the peoples around him, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. Listen, despite their fear, they got it done anyway. They rose up and accomplished it. Now, do you remember the ten statements from Deuteronomy that we read through in Ezra 3? Uh, explicitly stating that they should not fear or be discouraged. Do you remember that string? Do not fear. We learned that fear was real and present, but that the people chose to build in faith anyway. They began where they could with step one, and they built the altar of God on its foundation, making their very first sacrifice their fear, burning it up in faithful actions before their God. Just like their generations before them, These Israelites here in chapter 10 are surrounded by opposition from within and without. And yet they chose to place the sacred before security and assemble together in obedience despite the opposition. Did you think that the opposition to assembling that we received during COVID was difficult? Was that difficult opposition? We are telling you tonight that it's time to gird up your loins and rise up. Hallelujah! Because we have greater opposition to the will of God coming our way. But we will not fail to rise to those coming occasions and get the will of God done anyway. That's right. Like like us in this house, Ezra is not done rising up and getting the work done either. Let's look at our next verse, verse 10. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have been unfaithful. You have married foreign women. Adding to Israel's guilt. Now make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Amen. Separate yourselves from the peoples around you and from your foreign wives. That you may not have noticed it up to this point. We've now seen four times in this chapter where Ezra has risen up with courage. Not just to start, but to complete, to finish, to do God's will. The courage required to see the will of God completed is something that we want to meditate on for a moment. I have another slide for you. 6965. Kum. The word that we just showed you earlier in the text appears in Ezra 10.4. Ezra 10.5. Ezra 10.6. Ezra 10.10. Are you getting the cadence, so to speak? (laughs) Just for fun, humor me and do this in English with me. Ezra 10.4. Rise up! Ezra 10.5, rise up! Ezra 10.6, rise up! Ezra 10.10, rise up! There is a pounding drum that is speaking a message. Every bit of what has to be accomplished requires us to stand up both physically and spiritually to see repentance brought to completion. If we were to paint a complete picture here, during these difficult times in Ezra's family, he never ceases to rise up, and it's what defines him. Come on. It's not that it was easy. It's not that it all went well. He Come just on. didn't stop rising. Yeah. Amen. See, this is directly due to who Ezra is as a man and how he prepared himself. Now, remember, he prepared himself by setting his heart to study the law, yeah. to do the law, yeah. and to teach the law. If you endeavor to do the same, you yeah. will not fail to rise yes. during difficult moments yeah. either. Yeah. It is important that you notice that the Hebrew concept of rise up or kum is presented 
four times within chapter 10 at every single critical moment in the text. There is no way to advance the will of God without you and those you are responsible for rising up spiritually, physically, and above your own fear. Come on. Ezra heeded the commands of God. He heeded the instruction of Shechaniah, and he leaned on the brotherhood that he had in Johanan. And now he has not failed to rise up before the people. If you want to see revival, this is the winning combination. Also notice that Ezra has studied the word, observed the word, taught the word, and has been frequently called a scribe. But here we see it says Ezra the priest rose up. The scripture calls him Ezra the priest because he is clearly functioning as a priest, a mediator between God and man. The truth is, is that you can function in many unique facets and callings in your life. But this is all predicated on how you interact with the word of God and how you interact with the brothers around you. Time will not permit this evening to go into great detail, but you should know that the word for confession is literally todah, which in Hebrew is thankfulness or thanks. You should know that Ezra's command is saying, now give thanks, or confession comes standing right outside the gates of praise. Come on. It is worth noting that you cannot enter the temple without giving thanks, and you cannot go on to discern the will of God without starting by confessing or giving thanks for God's holiness. This is very similar to Joshua's command to Achan. Give glory to God, my son. (laughs) On one final note before we move on, we want you guys to notice that the text has two categories of separation that are required by God. Let's reread the second part of verse 11. Separate yourselves from the peoples around you and from your foreign wives. Wow. Two categories. All Israel was called to be at this meeting and charged with separating from the peoples as well as from their foreign wives. This speaks of worldly friendships, an imitation of practices that existed in the people whether or not they were married to a Gentile. Ezra 6.21 is a verse that we're going to read to pick up on a repeating pattern. So the Israelites who had returned from the exile ate it, together with all who had separated themselves from the unclean practices of their Gentile neighbors in order to seek the Lord, the God of Israel. So we see here in this passage, the people separated themselves from the unclean practices of the Gentiles. Here in our chapter tonight, the same command was going out again. And as we already mentioned, you will see this again in the time of Nehemiah when we get into that portion of the book. The solution is to stand where God has called you to rise up to. Stand where you are called to come, church. From that position, you can send these satanic satanic and harmful influences away from you. Let's continue in verse 12. The whole assembly responded with a loud voice. You are right. We must do as you say. Yeah. So right. the Hebrew literally says, the whole assembly responded with a great voice. Yes! Yes! yes. 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 Church, we must learn to acknowledge when correction is right. Changing your direction and pretending it was your own idea later on 
It's sinful. I heard from God. Quite frankly, it's unproductive and clearly against the biblical model. This is such an important lesson that we wanted to give you a few verses on the topic. Is that okay? Yes. Let's go to Acts 2 and pick up in verse 37. When the people, of this, uh, the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Yeah. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. When the finger of God is addressing hearts of men, it is not possible to say nothing. When the Spirit is convicting a man, a woman, or child, it causes them to rise up. Come on. To rise up and respond both physically and spiritually. This is primarily done through your brothers and your leaders. Church silence is not a response. The only right response is, Yes! You are right. And we must do it. Luke 3, verse 8 through 14 is going to carry this on. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 10. What should we do then, the crowd asked. Yeah. John answered, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Amen. 13, don't collect any more than you're required to do, he told them. 14, then some soldiers asked him, and what What should should we we do? do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Whether you're a Pharisee, teacher, or a soldier, tax collector, or a part of the crowd, the right response is, Yes! You are right! And we must do it! Alright, let's look at Revelation 15, 2-3. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast, and his image, and over the number of his name, They held harps given them by God and sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Church, you have a choice in this life to choose to say, yes, you are right and we must do it. Or at the great judgment seat of God, have the Almighty strip your stubborn, selfish pride away and expose how much you have tried to hide. One way or another, whether out of obedience and you bend your knee to the King of Kings or he breaks your kneecaps backwards, your response will be, yes, you are right, and we must do it. And you will not be able to remain silent at that time. Better to learn how to respond to correction physically and spiritually now. Husbands, if you do not do this in a public fashion, together with your pastors and your team, then there is no hope of your wife doing it with you. She'll just be silent and ignore your correction. But the inverse is also true. Okay. Amen. 
if yeah. you set your face to do these things together yeah, with your pastors and your team, and that in a public fashion, yeah. then you can be confident that your wife will rise up to do it with you. Oh, Come on! Man. Let's get to verse 13. Yeah. But there are many people here, and it is the rainy season, so we cannot stand outside. Besides, this matter cannot be taken care of in a day or two, because we have sinned greatly in this thing. Guys, we want to tell you, this is the winter rainy season that we're reading about here. It's after the fall feasts, but it's coming before the spring feasts that are quickly on the horizon. To an agricultural society, rain communicates difficulty in the moment, but the growing hope for new life in the future. It's like Hosea 6, 1. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. As is often the case, with real repentance, you come across matters, well, that can't be taken care of in just a day or two sometimes. But you got to start on it now. Amen. Put it in front of your face. Yes. Go after it. Continue to rise up. Be faithful to what God, your team, your pastors are showing you. Be faithful in those moments. You can do this with the hope and certainty that God's reign will indeed come. Come on. Amen. Let our officials act for the whole assembly. Let everyone in our towns who has married a foreign woman at a set time, along with the elders and judges of each town, until the fierce anger of our God in this matter is turned away from us. Yeah, so there's a few key aspects that we would like to retain from this verse, because it's going to help you understand the coming judicial process. We have a slide for you to help you out. This is Strong's number 8269, SAR. 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 <laughs> which is a masculine noun meaning chieftain, a chief, a ruler, an official, a captain, a prince. The primary usage is an official in the sense that this individual has immediate authority as a leader. So this is the English word officials, which would be uh, rightly translated in Hebrew as a chief, prince, or ruler. Are you following that? Most closely would be translated a chief, a prince, or a ruler of the people. The point is that these men have been put in charge to ensure that there is a thorough and just evaluation of all foreign marriages of Israel. We have another slide for you. It's called the method of evaluation. You ready? Mm. Yes. Yes. Settlement of the whole matter by the repudiation of the strange wives. Strange wives. Sounds like a show. Stranger wives. The opposition made it. Did not delay the business more than a few days. The great assembly had been held on the 20th day of the ninth month. On the first day, the tenth month, a little more than a week later, the commission for examining into the matter met under the presidency of Ezra and commenced proceedings. The method of proceedings suggested at the great meeting was no doubt followed. The case of each city was taken separately. Its male inhabitants of full age attended and its elders and judges. There it is. Do you remember we had the English word officials earlier? Yes. Now elders and judges are being added and sat on the commission as assessors 
while the conjugal position of their townsfolk was being investigated, where a mixed marriage was proven the wife was repudiated. repudiated. In 112 cases, the necessity of repudiation was made out to the satisfaction of the commission, and this number of wives was put away. As we continue on, you'll see that these officials, or chiefs, rulers of their people, elders, and judges, how many is that? Three. Three. Along with each man were responsible for ensuring the removal of all pagan wives. Additionally, it would require a team of two or three witnesses to confirm each individual case. It is likely that some proselyte wives existed that were not sinful in any way. And it was the commission's job to differentiate between these cases. The coming verses will bear that out plainly, as well as give us a list of men who successfully repented and separated from their foreign pagan wives. Praise God that they did. Amen. 15. Only Jonathan, son of Asael, and Jaziah, son of Tikva, supported by Meshulam, and Shabbatai, the Levite, opposed this. You know, it's certainly distressing to hear that men opposed this process of repentance, and it likely had a deep impact on Ezra personally. We would like to read an excerpt from Psalm 119 with you. This is verses 17 through 24. Do good to your servant, and I will live. I will obey your word. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. You see, in our chapter tonight, it is the backdrop to this verse, and it changes things significantly. Ezra's eyes were only seeing heinous sin since arriving in Jerusalem, and he (laughs) prays that his eyes would be open to the word. Man. That's a good thing to keep your eyes on. Verse 19 says, I am a stranger on earth. Do not hide your commands from me. A stranger from who? That's a good question. Who is he a stranger from? Mm. Well, his own people because of their sin. Ezra kept himself pure. Verse 20. My soul is consumed with longing for your laws at all times. You rebuke the arrogant who are cursed and who stray from your commands. Remove me. Remove from me scorn and contempt, for I keep your statutes. You see, the scorn and contempt that Ezra is speaking of are the men listed in verse 15. They're the only men opposing this process. That's the next one. Verses 23 through 24. Though rulers sit together and slander me, your servant will meditate on your decrees. Your statutes are my delight. They are my counselors. You see, Ezra was being slandered in a very literal sense by those that opposed the process of repentance. But the word continued to be his counselor. He didn't stop for a minute. He continued to rise up because the word was his counselor the entire time. As we move to verse 16, you should know that there is one member of the opposition in verse 15 who gets it right. And we will cover that later on. Come on. Let's get to verse 16. So the exiles did as was proposed. Ezra the priest selected men who were family heads, one from each family division, and all of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to investigate the cases. (laughs) So the heads of families were selected and made responsible for purifying their own families. Man, that's a subject that we could spend all night on. But we're just going to say here, rise up, family heads. It's your time to rise up. We have a slide for you regarding the term investigate. 
in verse 16. Anybody recognize him? Yeah. yeah. Darash? What? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Strong's 1875. Darash is the word investigate here. To seek, inquire, consult, ask, require, frequent. Guys, at the bottom of the slide here, you can see common ways that this word is translated. You shall seek, inquire. I was ready to be sought. You search after. Guys, you should recognize this word from Acts chapter 1. Yeah. Acts class. These men were charged with investigating or searching out the matter. If this were just about anyone with a wife from a different ethnic background being removed, well, there would be no need for an investigation. They wouldn't need a search or an inquiry. These men handled the job with seriousness in a similar fashion to what we see in Numbers 18 under Moses. We haven't said it yet. This is a three-month-long process. Yeah. Take three months to derash something. Come on. It's not push-up. It's not remez. It requires a derash. Keep going. And by the first day of the first one, they finished dealing with all the men who had married born one. Ah, uh, there it is. All right. So they finished. They finished just in time for the feast of Passover and unleavened bread. How long was this time period? Three months. Three months. Three months. Why? It's because it was a very real and careful investigation. Yep. It took time to go through all these families and to make wise decisions and give wise counsel. Let's put this in our ball, uh, our field for just a moment. We are in the middle of a three-month challenge. Is this something that you are going through your house and looking for areas that are unrefined or areas you need to repent? And you're looking to just do it on one service at an altar. Nope. Or are you looking forward to, this is going to take very real and careful investigation that might take daily engagement over a three-month period. Amen. Let's go to verse 18. Among the descendants of the priests, the following had married foreign women. Uh From the descendants of Jeshua, son of Jodhadeh, and his brothers Masiah, Eliezer, Jireh, Get alive. We grab on the names. Clearly, these are the sons of Joshua or Jeshua, whom we read about in the previous chapters. Now, it's sad to see that they fell prey to this sin, but it's also encouraging that they repented. In light of that, we're going to revisit Ezra 4 and pick up in verse 24. Thus, the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Here, Zerubbabel and Jeshua were in charge when the work stopped here. But don't tell me that your hard work in your workplace and your hard work in your home are not intimately linked. Do you believe that your work and the work in your home are actually linked together? They are. Yes. Yes. They are. Jeshua slacked off in the uh, slack of uh, slacked off in the building project, but it showed up in his sons and grandsons in the way that they slacked regarding the commands of God and marrying foreign women. Wow! So, thanks at this place, we are thankful for Wadulus Maximus the Great and Merciful, also known as Pastor Wade, who <laughs> 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 had every single verse and name for us. Yes. Brother Linton is still in training. He's a disciple. He hasn't right. quite reached the level of master status. <laughs> so I have conveniently highlighted some notes for Brother Linton 
banquet, he is going to read what is highlighted that are the categories of people we are covering without revealing every name for a second time. Brother, if you would get the highlighted section of verse 19, that would be a huge blessing. God bless you, They gave all their hands in pledge to put away their wives. So this is in regard to the priesthood. Now listen, everybody's shell-shocked when they hear that these priests sinned. You need to worry far more about your name being on a list like this. This is the list of men who repented, not the men who didn't repent. Amen. It goes on to say, and for their guilt, they each presented a ram from the flock as a gift offering. I want you to know they're following exactly the prescription of the law, as evidenced in Leviticus chapter 6, verses 5 through 7. Whatever it was he swore falsely, he must make restitution in full, add a fifth of its value to it, and give it all to the owner on the day he presents his guilt offering. We just included that verse in case you've ever stolen something and you're sitting in this room. That's what the law requires. Amen. And as a penalty, he must bring to the priest, that is, to the Lord, his guilt offering, a ram from the flock, one without defect and of the proper value. In this way, the priest will make atonement for him before the Lord, and he will be forgiven for any of the things he did that made him guilty. See, there is no remission of sins that is not public. If a priest, if a man called to be an elder, a pastor, is sinning, your repentance is before the whole world. This is how it works. They drug a lamb, or a ram in this case, up there. It made the right sacrifice to go on with God and get doing what they were called to do. Somebody say, rise up! Rise up! Brother Linton, if you would get the next highlighted section. From the descendants of Amr. Keep going all the way through. From the descendants of Harim. From the descendants of Pashur. Among the Levites. Come on. From the singers. From the gatekeeper. Are you catching it here? We are naming huge tribal clans or family clans. And even among the Levites, among the singers, from the gatekeepers, each class, as they relate to ministry, is specifically highlighted in their repentance testimony. These are the men who carried out the Lord's instructions despite its difficulty. Brother, get 25 and 26 in the highlighted. Among the other Israelites, from the descendants of Baruch, from the descendants of Elam. Oh, well, maybe verse 26 will read the whole thing. Mataniah, Zechariah, Jehiel, Abdi, Jeremoth, and Elijah. Man, from the descendants of Elam. Who was a descendant of Elam? Shechaniah. Oh, that's right, Shechaniah. Shechaniah was. And who was his daddy? Jehiel. Jehiel. And the other men listed here are his five uncles. This is Shechaniah's family. These six men are Shechaniah's father and his five paternal uncles. His righteous stand produced repentance in them. And imagine if he would have just been quiet, didn't preach the full truth. Like Judah said earlier, it's not a bad thing they're mentioned here on the list. There was something prescribed that they could repent with. They're actually listed as repenting because their nephew took a stand for righteousness. Keep reading the highlighted portions. From the descendants of Zatu, from the descendants of Bibai, from the descendants of Bani. From the descendants of Bani. What's the first name mentioned there? Meshulam. 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 Man, Meshulam repented. Come on. Amen. He was one of the men in verse 15 who was in opposition to the plan. Yeah. Come on. 
Never be opposed to the plan of repentance, because that means you're the one with the sin. <laughs> he was in opposition to the plan, but it seems God moved on him, and he repented anyway. He went on from being an adversary to the plan of repentance proposed to being one of those cleansed in the process. We legitimately have a few things we want to get to, but is anybody shell-shocked to find out that one of the men resisting was because he had a foreign bride, yeah. even if everyone else didn't know about it? Not surprising. But praise God, he drove that into the light Amen. and was able to be cleansed. Yes. From the descendants of Pehat Mohab, from the descendants of Harim, from the descendants of Hashum, descendants of Bani, descendants of Binui, the descendants of Nebo. So, wow, that's the chapter, church, right there. You know, at the end of verse 44, it reads, And these had married foreign women, and some of them had children by these wives. So there's actually some other translations as well as a footnote that you might have in your Bibles that say, And they sent them away with their children. The NAB, the NRSV, the TEV, the CEV all translate it in this way. Regardless of your interpretation, though, the point is, is that sin had created children at this point. But Israel made the decision to go the full extent to clear themselves. The desire of sin was found within the people. They were dragged away and enticed with these foreign women. Sin was birthed in the form of sons and daughters, literally birthed. Sin grew and grew. Their families were growing together in this environment. It should remind you of a certain passage in James 1. See that there? You see the chart? When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil. Nor does he tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when? By his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, give, gives birth to death. Guys, the final result, hear me, would have been death occurring here. If it had not been for the radical, radical amputation of these men of God and the nation of Israel come here. On, on. Guys, let's talk about Meshulam for just a moment. He got it wrong. And then... He doubled down on his bad decision in front of everybody. Yep. We saw that in verse 15 when he stood opposed to God's direction. But he found the grace of God by shaking off his fear. Amen. Guys, he rose up and he did the right thing when it counted. And so he's included with those who repented and sent their wives and children away in verse 29. This man radically amputated. Guys, we've got to shake off our own fears regarding our own sin. We have got to kum. We've got to rise up and do the right thing no matter how many times we must rise to that occasion. Amen. And when we rise up, revival happens. We have a slide that you write, remember, called Steps to Real Revival and what it looks like. And we're going to review it in these final minutes. Sin is discovered. Then you have grief over sin. Trembling over sin. Prayer and confession of sin. Public weeping and prostration. Confession of the people. Covenant to separate from sin. Continued fasting and prayer of Ezra because of the sin of the people. Proclamation for public assembly or excommunic uh, excommunication. 
and a public assembly of trembling of the people. This brings repentance. Number 11, sermon by Ezra demanding separation from all sin. Did you notice that they didn't run from that situation? They actually had to send it away from them as they stood in the will of God? Come on now. Number 12, willingness of the people to conform to the demands of the law, the examination of the people, and the roster of all who had taken strange wives, and of those who were, uh, who were now conforming to the law. Now, what we don't see in the text here is how it left no regret, but true repentance leaves no regret. Yeah. But the process of repentance, the process of salvation it's much, much more difficult than just saying, I'm sorry. It has to produce real change that leaves no regret. You want to know how we know that there is no regret? Because sin was actually removed from the community. It wasn't managed. Yeah. It yeah. wasn't held on to. It wasn't sitting around waiting to grow like the slide that Pastor Nick shared until it could kill you. Yeah. They did whatever it took to separate themselves. Hosea 6 is something that we read earlier in the evening. And given that I have 3 minutes and 30 seconds, I'm going to summarize it for you. They press. They press. When they recognize that God has torn them apart, there's also the hope and the character of God that is rising like the sun itself. Amen. So we think about the spring rains in our society and our culture. I haven't been getting a lot of it as of late in Texas. True. But in Israel, there are two major rain cycles, one in the winter and one in the spring. Can I tell you how much you need the winter rains? See, when you're expecting God to rain on you, it's not really grace. When you're demanding that God speaks to you, you're on hunger strike for it, you expect Him to move and He does? What is that? Like a petulant child getting something. You don't recognize it. You're not actually thankful for it. You think it's the fruit of your own life. But the winter rains come when you don't feel like God will rain on you. During that season when you're between the regalia feast, if you will, somewhere between the major moves of God and you just feel dry like He hasn't spoken to you in a while and you're not sure what to do, that is when the winter rains come, saints. Come on. Talked to you yesterday or Sunday about leaders being born out of desperation, and I'm not going to preach on that again. I tell you, we're headed for winter rains, and honestly, your leadership team, that's where we're at. We're learning to be desperate for God. Amen. And it means all the more when He answers in that kind of moment. Something that I do not want us to leave without giving to you is this next slide, sound booth. Ezra the Apostle. You're going to find out that Zerubbabel in many ways can be compared to Paul. Paul said, I lay a foundation like an expert builder. Anybody remember that? Yeah. What did Zerubbabel do? He laid the foundation and then built the temple. Ezra in many ways can be compared to Apollos, a man who was fierce in the teaching, learned about the ways more adequately and spent his life equipping the saints of God to stand on the foundation Paul had laid. Well, in Ezra 7.14, you see that he is sent. What does the word apostle mean, pastors? Anybody want to help? Sent. Someone who is sent. Ezra 7, you see that he is appointed by magistrates and judges to administer. 
You ever heard Paul's opening letters where he says, I was appointed as an ambassador of God, appointed as an apostle of God? He deals with those who don't obey the law. And in Ezra 10, 5 through 6, it says he rose up and put the leading priest in Levites and all Israel under oath. What does an apostle do? He raises up the other members of the fivefold, works to appoint elders in every location. You go on to Ezra 10, 16, and it says he selected men who were family heads. I'm proud to say that what is on this slide did not come from my research. It came from my brothers and members of this congregation. But would you be shocked to find out that as we throw this next slide on the screen, the three returns from exile, that what this is, it's actually three waves of apostles. Zerubbabel who laid a foundation so that others could build on it. Ezra who taught the people, trained them, showed them how it looks to retain the word of God. Oh man, there's an apostle who's going to be sent that we are coming to very shortly together who will build up the walls of the city of God. Come on, Paul. We want to close our time in the book of Ezra, which is really the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, but the work of Ezra was saying that not only is Ezra just like an apostle, but Ezra acts like another type of apostle, the Messiah himself. When we look at Ezra in the course of his life, we see him just like Jesus bearing the sin of the people. He did not call them out first. He did not just say it was their problem. Although there is no recorded sinful action done by Ezra, you see him getting down with the people and bearing the sin with them, just like Jesus. We see him just like Jesus who was sent. He was a sent one to destroy the devil's work among the people of Israel. It is our prayer as we close and hand this over to the pastors that just like Ezra foreshadows the Messiah in all kinds of beautiful ways, that we would also take on that Messiah in us and we would learn to bear the sin of the people. We would learn to get down and join and repent together, help each other, help one another, but also make it our aim to destroy the devil's work in this body, starting in ourselves and then in our home our family, just like the family of Israel, and seeing that work extend to the nation. Amen? Maybe you're like me, and as you were reading through the list in Ezra 10, maybe your first response was like, man, look at all these names that are recorded in the Bible for perpetuity for having messed this up. Anybody have that thought? Yeah, most of the hands in the room. Then you have to personally repent because you realize that these were the men who got it right and their names are recorded in the Word of God for perpetuity because they repented. I would imagine that the one that you tend to focus on explains whether you're good at repenting or not. If all you can see is a list of people, man, they got called out. I can't believe it. Instead of seeing the glorious action that is there for men who rose up 
They stood up and they said, yes, you are right. We will do exactly what you have said. Church, that must be your response when someone, the word, your pastors, a threefold council is saying that you have not done this right. You need to repent. Yes, you are right. I must do exactly what you say. If that is not your wholehearted response, then we need to get better at repenting. Is anybody like me and you just need to get better at repenting? You don't mind somebody else repenting, but there's all that stuff inside of you that's like, uh, I can't believe it. This is showing that. Stop all of it. Your words inside of your heart should be, yes, you are right. We will do exactly what you said, Lord. 2 Peter 3.9 says this. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You realize that God is often just times waiting on us to repent? And if we'll get good about the business of repenting, whether you're Meshulam and you got it wrong to start with, but you find out and you get on board with what's going on, this is what God is doing inside of this house. Amen. See, because there's an advancement of what's going on. There are battles ahead, and you're not going to be able to stand on the wrong side of this and just kind of keep going. God is calling to us to repentance, and your response must be, Yes, you are right. We will do what you said. You know what that will result in for an eternity? Your name being written down. Come on. Your name being written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Recorded for all of eternity. Bit of a rhetorical question, but is that what you want? Yes. You're right. But let's be honest. As we studied tonight, that's only the first half. When they shouted, yes, you are right, we will do it. That's step one. There's a follow-through. That follow-through is letting your yes be yes. Committed to action and seeing it through. I want to read a familiar passage that highlights both the yes and the committed action. It's 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, Yes, you are right, we will do it. He is faithful and just and will forgive our sins, which is what we're looking for. And isn't it good when your conscience is clean before God? You stand right with Him. The latter half of this verse is then the demonstration of the committed action to let your yes be yes. And purify us from all unrighteousness. Does the purification happen on just one day in one moment and you're done? No. How long does the purification last? Until I'm dead. Yeah. Until my very last breath is breathed. So what we are going to do is that we're going to kum. 
Come on. We're going to rise to our feet now. But you're going to rise in your inner man to this call to confess and to act. What God is putting on your heart now, what He has been putting on your heart maybe the past couple of weeks, but it is becoming a laser-like focus of exactly what needs to be slain and killed before Him that is opposing Him. Put it to death now. Confess it to Him now. And then have actionable steps that everybody knows about that are right before God and right before men, and we will see our names listed with these other faithful men. Mighty God, we rise up today because we can feel that you are calling us to rise up. Lord, we offer to you the kind of hearts that says, yes, you are right, we will do as you say. Lord, let us be able to be men like the men that we saw tonight in your word who were faithful to be able to excise the sin from their lives, to be able to get their own heart, to be able to get rid, Lord, of the mixing of their life with the worldness, uh, worldliness around them. Lord, that they might rise up, that they might be recorded as those who knew what it was to be full of repentance, to be full of actions that were demonstrating their repentance. Lord, let us learn how to repent as a church. Lord, that as you are pointing something out, Lord, we will run to say yes, 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 you are right. And we rise up in it. Lord, we will not grovel in despair, in self-deprecation. We will rise up because that is what you are doing here. And because of it, your word will be seen in the nations of this world because of what is going on in this room and in the hearts of your people. Lord, we honor you and say thank you for helping us to rise up tonight. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen.